Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. So Keo Ross came to the U.S. with his parents when he was a young child, after they fled Cambodia to escape the murderous regime of Pol Pot, the leader of the Khmer Rouge in the 1970s. Coming up, Ross will join us to talk about how his family restarted their life in Rhode Island and how dance helped keep him grounded during a time when he struggled with identity and purpose. He's now the director of a hip-hop and theater company in Providence. His latest work focuses on mass incarceration. We'll also talk with the Connecticut man who served time for a white-collar crime. We'll find out how he's now working to help ex-offenders re-enter society. But first, the acquittal of Minnesota police officer Geronimo Yanez in the shooting death of Philando Castillo. Some Americans are shaking their heads in disbelief. Others say it's a product of a system that doesn't value black lives. Still others say police have a hard job and Yanez's actions do not rise to a criminal act. We know it's an emotional issue, and Where We Live wants to explore this conversation further in your community. Where do you want us to have this dis- this conversation? And who do you want us to invite into the discussion? Email wherewelive at wmpr.org. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We'll keep you updated on where we'll have this community conversation, and we hope you can join us. Now, Chirag Baines has an interesting perspective on the Philando Castile case. He served in the Justice Department from 2010 to 2017, where he prosecuted police misconduct and investigated patterns of abuse. He's now a senior fellow at Harvard Law School's Criminal Justice Policy Program and a Leadership and Government Fellow with the Open Society Foundation. He joins us now by phone. Chirag, welcome to where we live. Thank you, Lucy. Happy to be here. I wanted to get your reaction to the verdict in uh, the, the trial of Geronimo Yanez. Were you surprised? I was. I was shocked. I mean, I know several people have said they were not shocked anymore. They're not shocked when a police officer is acquitted in these cases. But this case was a winnable one for the government. Castile was cooperative. He pulled over immediately. He didn't flee or resist or complain in any way, handed over his insurance, was calm, and actually politely told the officer that he had a firearm in the car. So there was no reason to think he posed a threat, and yet the jury still could not find the officer acted unlawfully. So I was surprised. You said it was winnable for the government. Let's go over the, the charges that Yanez has faced after the death of Castile. I believe it was second-degree manslaughter, also endangering safety by discharging a firearm. Um, if it was winnable, uh, what did the prosecution in the state of Minnesota do wrong, if at all? Well, it was winnable, but there are challenges in these cases. This case, there was a video, of course, and uh, the public has now seen two videos. One, we had seen Diamond Reynolds had recorded the immediate aftermath of the shooting, but there was also dash camera video from Yanez's car, and the public has now seen that. Now, that video doesn't show what happened inside the car, so it wasn't conclusive, but it was strong evidence. As I said, it showed Castile being compliant and volunteering information to the officer. There are several factors that may have played a role in why the jury ultimately acquitted. First of all, the defense's job is to try to create reasonable doubt to muddy the waters, so to speak, and they did their best at that. They put up an expert witness to contradict what the government's expert had said. The government's expert was an ex-police officer who had testified for police and against police and said the conduct was unreasonable. The defense put up their own expert 
So you have what we call the battle of the experts, where the jury is maybe left thinking, well, if the experts can't agree, perhaps there's reasonable doubt. They also uh, made the victim look like a bad person. They repeatedly raised the presence of marijuana and in the car and uh, introduced evidence that Castile and Reynolds smoked marijuana recreationally, evidence that really had no relevance to the trial, but again, made the victim look less sympathetic. Uh, Yanez took the stand. He, he claimed that he feared for his life. Um, we can talk in a moment about how that's not actually enough to avoid the charges here. But he also uh, disputed the facts. He said that Castillo was, in fact, withdrawing his gun at the time. And he testified emotionally through tears, talked about his wife and baby, and had people vouch for his uh, honesty. And that's not something that the jury could hear from Castillo, couldn't hear Castillo's perspective. Uh, finally, I'd say the jury, in this case, and in, in my experience in cases generally where police officers are the defendants, juries have a hard time convicting police officers. The, the Supreme Court law is very deferential to police officers, and so that plays a role. But in addition, jurors, are uh, they tend to credit police officer testimony and not want to convict them in these cases. So it's, it's quite challenging. We're talking about the Philando Castile case uh, after so many others that have gotten attention uh, in recent years, uh, Chirag, um, cases where police officers have used deadly force against black men and they've died. And we know that um, some of these cases, the trials end as this one did in acquittal and some also in hung juries. Um, we wanted to speak with you today because you wrote a piece in The Guardian um, where you say, quote, only by maintaining our moral outrage do we have any hope of seeing justice in future cases. Tell us what you mean. Well, moral outrage certainly isn't enough. It's, it's not sufficient for us to see justice in these cases. There are concrete steps that we could take to improve the chances of convictions. But I think moral outrage is necessary. And there's a perverse way in which the proliferation of these videos creates the risk that we'll come to accept them as a part of life and that we'll come to accept acquittals and hung juries, and that we'll no longer expect the justice system to hold that minority of officers who do commit crimes accountable when they cross the line. You know, a lot of people said they were not shocked when the acquittal was announced. I used to prosecute these cases for a living, and I was shocked, and I thought it was important to say so. I think that outrage is necessary to push forward for change, because ultimately it will take culture change. After all, what is the justice system uh, but a reflection of our values? And until the public at large begins to see the status quo as unacceptable, we're unlikely to see convictions in these cases. Um, Chirag Baines, again, can we talk more about um, some of the factors that could lead to future convictions? Because, again, we, it, it appears that there is a pattern of, of people, police officers, that are not being found guilty, for, again, for using deadly force um, in these cases. Um, without convictions, people lose faith in the justice system, as you said. So um, what are some ways that uh, factors that could lead to future convictions if a police officer is found making the wrong decision? There are a number of states that don't actually have very good statutes under which to bring these cases. Uh, now, Minnesota did have one secondary manslaughter required culpable negligence, negligence essentially that the officer acted unreasonably and created the dangerous situation uh, himself. And, and so they could proceed in this case. But I would say to people around the country, examine your own state statutes and see whether there is a sufficient tool to bring these cases. You know, that's the first thing. A second thing is that the Supreme Court should provide clearer, more common-sense guidance on when force is illegal. Right now, the standards are a bit vague and in application, very deferential to police, to police use of force. Uh, the doctrine talks about 
uh, split-second judgments that officers have to make in often tense situations. And while that's true, those words have come to be uh, sort of a talisman, something that's invoked and that results in reasonable doubt in these cases, and it, it shouldn't be an automatic application. The court can clean up this area of law by talking more about the immediacy of the threat that the person poses, the necessity of using force, the availability of alternatives, and the requirement that the force be proportional to the threat. I think those kinds of changes would better align the law with community standards. We're seeing a great disjunction right now between them. And the other concrete thing I would say is that these cases are very difficult to prosecute at the federal level. That's why we see most of the prosecutions at the state level. The Department of Justice, where I used to work, does have a specialized unit within the Civil Rights Division that prosecutes officer misconduct. And they know how to investigate these cases and try them to a jury to give them the best chance of being successful. That involves building corroborative evidence, skillfully bringing out inconsistent statements, and appealing to juries that are, as I said, reluctant to convict. The problem, though, is that the federal statute requires a very high level of intent. You have to show that the officer's mental state was akin to what we see in first-degree murder cases, that they intended to violate the person's rights. It would be better if the federal statute allowed charges to be brought when the officer's conduct was reckless, and then this could take more of these cases. This is where we live. We're speaking with Chirag Baines, senior fellow at Harvard Law School's Criminal Justice Policy Program. Um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, he also worked with the Justice Department from 2010 uh, to, to recently, where he prosecuted police misconduct, investigated patterns of abuse. Um, a lot of those changes uh, you mentioned, Chirag, um, they, they sound uh, worthwhile, but change takes time, as we know. Meanwhile, uh, there's this drumbeat in this country where people feel, again, depending on the color of their skin, that they're not seen um, as a valuable member of our society. How do we how do we get at that? Yes, you're right. These changes that I've discussed are longer term changes, congressional actions, Supreme Court doctrine changing. Uh, but I think that the first step in all of this is just having more conversations about these cases. So you know, you brought up the relevance of race. There's evidence in this case that Officer Yana's decisions were affected by race. He claimed that he thought that Castile matched the description of a robbery suspect, but that description was of two black males. And, of course, in the car here, we had one black man, one black woman, and a child in the back. Uh, Yanez claimed that Castile had a wide nose, like one of the suspects, which many people took to mean simply that Castile was black. The officer actually had nothing more to go on. That's why he had to stop Castile based on a brake light being out. With regard to the stop, I think we should also be talking about the role of race there, the, uh, with regard to the, uh, the use of force. You know, Castile was polite, call, calling the officer sir, being compliant, volunteering information. He did reach for his wallet, and that's because the officer had asked him for his license. So he was trying to comply. You know, under all these circumstances, it's very hard to avoid the conclusion that Castile's race factored into the officer's assessment of his dangerousness and his mistaken belief that Castile was reaching for the gun. So I think the first step is we should talk about race in the context of these cases and in the context of people's everyday lives, what they experience out there in their communities. And the more we talk about it, the more we build the sense that something needs to change. I mentioned you're a former federal prosecutor, uh, worked within the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division. Let's talk about that division's future under the current administration. Any concerns about these kinds of cases going forward? Yeah, I, I have a lot of concerns about the direction the Civil Rights Division is being pushed in right now across the board on civil rights cases with regard to LGBT rights, voting rights, and, yes, police misconduct. On the individual criminal cases, we haven't yet seen any reversals, but 
there's other work that the department does with regard to systemic change in police departments. You know, the Department of Justice does investigate police departments for what we call a pattern or practice of constitutional violations. So a pattern of unconstitutional stops and searches or excessive force uh, or discriminatory policing. And typically the result when we do find a practice or when the department does find a practice is to enter into a consent decree where we, we had required a number of changes across the board to policy, training, internal accountability systems, hiring and promotion to try to reform the police department. And that is work that the Justice Department has explicitly said it's going to back away from. Attorney General Jeff Sessions has said he doesn't believe in it. He doesn't seem to believe that there is systemic misconduct, only individual bad actors. And that is a recipe for disaster. We, the, often in these cases, we focus on the individual accountability, which I think is important to maintain a system that people can have faith in. But there are often systemic reasons for why we get to this situation in the first place, and there are deficiencies uh, and shortcomings in, in, as I said, training and other systems. And so the fact that the department is backing away from that work is a very bad sign. I've been speaking with Chirag Baines. He's a senior fellow at Harvard Law School's Criminal Justice Policy Program. Uh, Chirag, I mentioned that we want to have another community conversation about uh, this uh, race and our interactions with police. And we'd love to invite you to Connecticut to be part of that discussion at, at a future date. I'd be happy to do that. It's great that you're, you all are doing that. Chirag Baines, again, and we will tweet out the link to your article in The Guardian. Uh, we appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Chirag. Thank you. I appreciate it. Coming up, we're going to hear how one Connecticut man is working to help ex-offenders restart their lives again. He knows what it's like to have a criminal record. We're going to hear from Jeff Grant's Jeff Grant rather after the break. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. A criminal record carries stigma. Who are the best people equipped to help a former prisoner restart his or her life again? Our next guest may fit that description. Jeff Grant is executive director of Family Reentry and co-founder of Progressive Prison Ministries at Prisonist.org. Jeff knows what it's like to serve time on the inside. What did he experience after serving time in prison? And how is he now helping ex-offenders? He joins us now in studio. Jeff, welcome to where we live. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Are you uh, Connecticut born and raised? I'm not. I actually grew up on Long Island, but I've lived in uh, Connecticut and Greenwich for uh, approximately 15 years. So um, I'm really proud to be a uh, nutmegger. Now, I wanted to, we mentioned that you um, know what it's like to serve time in prison. Tell us a little bit about what led you to be convicted of a, a white-collar crime. Well, I was uh, addicted to prescription painkillers. Um, a lot of that's in the news these days about you know opiate abuse. And I was no different. It led me down a, a path where I made some mistakes in my law firm, commingled client funds. I wound up taking out a federal loan that I... Um, made uh, fraudulent uh, representations on and uh, got caught and uh, tried to commit suicide. That's part of my story. And then wound up serving almost 14 months in a federal prison in in uh, Pennsylvania. Now, you said that um, you tried to kill yourself. I did. Tell us about what that what that's like when you make a mistake and you, you see that your life, you're going to probably spend some time in jail. That impact not only on you personally, but the people around you. Well, it was devastating to me, to my family, to my community. I was hopeless. I certainly didn't think that I would have any life. There was no way for me to know at that point that I would, it was just the beginning of a new life. 
but um, it, just a dark place. And at that time, uh, criminal justice wasn't in the um, forefront of the national conversation. It is now, I mean, of course, now it's practically dinner table conversation. But at the time, we were um, very alone and isolated, and I didn't know what to do. And um, in that isolation, I uh, sought to take my life. You ended up going to jail. When people hear white-collar crime, there are these perceptions of, oh, he probably just went to this, you know, low-level prison, kind of, you know, kind of like not as bad as what people see on television, what prison looks like. What was your experience? Well, that's what I was hoping for, too. (laughs) That's what I'd read. um, But when I got the notice in the mail, the designation, it didn't say camp. It said low-security prison. So I went right to the Internet and looked it up. And as it turns out, I was designated to an actual prison with bars and controlled movements. And it was a difficult time. You know, I, uh, I had to actually serve time in prison with a lot of violent criminals and drug dealers and very few white collar types. And uh, I think that it changed me. It kind of wiped the smirk off my face and helped me grow up in ways that uh, I really needed to grow up. What were the perceptions of the other prisoners when they saw this guy, learned he was from Greenwich, right? I don't think I told them at first. (laughs) Mostly in prison, it's an art of showing respect and keeping your mouth shut when it comes down to it. You know, nobody really cared what I had to say about anything. And in truth, it was a lesson that the kind of grandiosity and narcissism that I displayed when I was a lawyer really had no place in prison. I had to learn how to be um, a quiet observer. So your experience, again, a lot of of learning as you went. What did that experience uh, teach you about the criminal justice system? Did it open your eyes? It did. Um, I see a lot of injustice, especially in prison. I I spoke to many guys, mostly while I was walking around the track. You know, part of my story is that I walked 14,000 laps around the track in that year, uh, equivalent of 3,500 miles from New York to Los Angeles. And while I was doing it, I got to speak to hundreds of guys, literally, with all kinds of legal problems and who you know, suffered the indignities of inner city deprivation. Now, they didn't really have a chance in life, but um, they were good people and they were smart and, and uh, heartfelt. You know, there were a lot of humanity there, but that's not really reported mostly in the media. And um, it, was a, it was a touching, moving experience as well as a very frightening one. When you served your time you're looking forward to getting out, but then what then? How did you navigate that once you uh, were out of this prison? Well, when I came out, I had um, court-mandated drug and alcohol counseling from my prescription narcotic addiction. And my counselor said to me that the road back to life would be through volunteerism. I did what I was told. I Maybe for the, first, for the first time in my life, I was learning to do what I was told. And I started to volunteer in local nonprofits, and that led me to family reentry which is the nonprofit that I'm currently the uh, executive director of. In fact, I'm the first person in the country incarcerated for white-collar crime to be appointed as the head of a major criminal justice organization. So I'm, I'm very proud and humbled about that. And they appointed me to their board of directors soon after that. And while I was doing that kind of work, I um, got the calling to go to seminary. I'm not even sure how that happened, to be honest. It's a f- part of my faith journey that... Um, is rich, but was quite unexpected. And I attended Union Theological Seminary in New York City for three years and got my Master's of Divinity and a focus in Christian social ethics. I was, it was important to me that I focus on ethics, especially since that was my undoing. And from there, I became the uh, assistant pastor and director of prison ministries at a black inner city church in Bridgeport. 
and learned a lot about compassion and the plight of people in uh, Bridgeport and those types of communities. And at the same time, I was living in Greenwich. So I had this bifurcated kind of life, you know, a, a life of around people who had plenty and a life around people who had little. And um, I learned to navigate that and have a, like a foot in both worlds. And that led my wife, Lynn Springer, and I to found the first prison ministry in the country to support white-collar criminals and their families. And we did that in Greenwich. And it was uh, headquartered at Christ Church in Greenwich, big Episcopal church. And um, last fall, last September, the board of directors of Family Reentry asked me to become their executive director. And what a gift. Mm. What, an, what an honor. This is where we live. I'm speaking with Jeff Grant, again, executive director of Family Reentry. Um, Jeff, so you landed on your feet. A lot of people, when they leave prison, they aren't so lucky. How does Family Reentry help ex-offenders um, who you know, have, have a lot that they have to wade through to try to find a job or someone that's open to even hiring them because of that record? Well, Family Reentry has an over 30-year history of <clears throat> helping ex-offenders and their families and their children mostly from the inner city, now in eight different communities, Bridgeport, New Haven, Norwalk. And we provide um, wraparound services for people coming out of prison, domestic violence services. We have residential programs. You know, it's a, it's a full suite of programs, but of course, like many other nonprofits in the state, we're now uh, suffering from the uh, uh, budget crisis, the fiscal crisis. So we're unsure of where things are gonna um, be in the next three days, probably. But we've prepared for it. We've leaned down, and uh, we think we're putting out a positive message that um, there can be private-public partnerships and nonprofit partnerships where we can solve these problems together. We don't need our handout to the state. Um, I believe the state is doing the best job it can in a very, very difficult situation, and um, and we have to meet them halfway. If we can't depend upon them any longer, then we have to find private partners who are going to fund this. And what about uh, people like yourself who were convicted of a, a, a white-collar crime? What kind of help is out there for them? Well, not that much, very little. Uh, on Tuesday nights, we have a white-collar support group that meets online, and we, it's a video chat group. So we have, um, we have formerly um, incarcerated white-collar criminals all over the country who are living in isolation. We found one another, and we talk about our pain, our suffering, uh, solutions, what we really go through. And unfortunately, most of my colleagues there um, are driving Uber, are working manual labor. It's very tough out there for a, someone who is incarcerated for white-collar crime. Very tough to get a job and very uh, difficult road back. Um, I was reading a lot of your uh, different uh, biographies uh, with the work that you're doing, family reentry, um, and you had uh, written in one uh, article that you see people who have faced and been convicted of inner city crimes and those who have uh, been convicted of white collar crimes are sharing a lot of similar themes in their lives. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, um, I think that people are people um, in, at their at their core. They want to lead good lives. They want to provide for their families, but they live in in suffering. They live in um, kind of miscommunication, and it's the people are the same. The communities are different. Um, for example, um, people in Greenwich, you know, could think that they're living lives of plenty and they could live a life of financial stability, but when uh, the indictment comes down, they find out very quickly what's um, the definition of rich and poor. I mean, what really is important in life. And they find themselves ill-prepared, whereas in a place like Bridgeport or New Haven or, um, or Hartford, 
um, they have more of an embodied sense of criminal justice in prison. It's unfortunate, but it's in their midst. As, as you know, uh, one in um, uh, one in three black uh, men in this country will um, probably be um, uh, have a criminal record before they um, before they become adults, and um, that's just not true in an affluent um, an affluent community. But when the problem hits, then it's the same, and the statistics do not count. At the same time, uh, when you walk into a room and you're talking to the the inner city kid from Bridgeport, um, how do you connect with him or her? Well, um, the first thing I have to do is I have to put my white privilege on the table. There's no question that I grew up in an affluent suburb. I had a lot of um, advantages in life that probably um, they don't have. That's not always the case, but but often. And I speak from a position of authenticity. It helps that I'm a reverend. It helps that um, I've been to prison. But uh, for, I don't for one second think that I understand where they're coming from, from their social location. I, I, don't try to res- uh, I don't try to pretend that I understand. I try to, try to speak from my social location and speak with honesty and um, authenticity. And I have a comeback story. And to the extent that that's helpful to them, great. But what I won't, I won't do is I won't pander. I won't, I won't go so far as to have a, a cosmic um, solution that's right for everybody. You mentioned uh, lots of talk now about reforming the criminal justice system in this country. You're on the ground working um, with helping people reenter their communities. Uh, What are some improvements that are needed here in Connecticut? We've heard a lot from the governor and his criminal justice initiatives, but what is needed to help more Connecticut residents who face a similar struggle? Well, um, the the before prison, what we need is more focus, I believe. We need more focus on families and community prevention, intervention. Um, it would be wonderful if we had a society where most people didn't have to go to prison in the first place, or if we had a way to give them a cradle to career or cradle to pardon um, support. Um, but we don't have that right now. But you know, it's a, it's a goal. It's a vision down the line. Upon coming back, um, what um, there's no question that what we need is a revitalized nonprofit wraparound services to help them. Um, the, the, the shame would be is that while, even while we're lowering prison populations in the state, which is good, they've lowered it by 5,000 people um, in, uh, in residential uh, prisons in, this, in the state, where are we if they come out into the, um, into the community and there's no jobs, there's no substance abuse counseling, there's no mental health counseling, there's no uh, counseling for their, sur- um, for their families. Um, it's a it's a ticking time bomb until they go back to prison. And what have we really uh, um, achieved? And uh, the answer to that is, you know, we'll find out because uh, uh, that's where we are right now. You worry that that cycle will continue, especially with with budget problems on the again trying to figure ways to, to fill the deficit where money's not trickling down to these nonprofits helping these very people you're talking about. Yeah, well, look, we're very grateful for the Governor's Second Chance Society. We're we're, we're grateful for the leadership throughout the country and the, and the focus on criminal justice here in Connecticut. But the budget has been devastating for wraparound services and for all kinds of services um, within the community. It's not just a criminal justice problem. It's a mental health um, services problem. It's a substance abuse problem and, and many other nonprofit and um, orphan um, um, areas out there that are going to be just swept under the rug until, of course, they become an even larger problem.
Jeff Grant is executive director of Family Reentry. We just have uh, under a minute, but what's a, a solution because the dollars aren't there? How are you talking with your board members? Well, the solutions are private dollars, and of course, we accept donations at Family Reentry at familyreentry.org. Uh, family and um, but that's true for all of our fine nonprofit um, colleagues too. They're all doing good work, and together we're we're forming a a way to get through this problem together. Jeff Grant, it's a pleasure to speak with you, and I know we just didn't have very much time to learn about family reentry, and maybe you can come back in the future, and we can meet some of the people you're helping. Thank you, Lucy. Jeff Grant, again, executive director of Family Reentry, also co-founder of Progressive Prison Ministries, and editor of the blog site Prisonist.org. We'll tweet out that link um, at where we live. Now, coming up, we're going to bring you the story of a Cambodian refugee who grew up in Providence and now uses dance to connect with his audiences on a number of issues, from family relationships to mass incarceration. After the break, we'll meet Sokio Ross. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Occasionally, we've been bringing you the stories of immigrants to the show. So Keo Ross and his parents are originally from Cambodia, but they fled their native country as refugees to escape the regime of Pol Pot. Ross came here as a young child. He now lives in Rhode Island. He's the director of the hip-hop dance program at Everett Company Stage and School in Providence, and he'll be in Connecticut today to speak at Wesleyan University's Ring Family Performing Arts Hall. So Keo, welcome to where we live. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I understand that you were born in a Cambodian refugee camp in Thailand. Tell us again why your parents left um, Cambodia. The whole Khmer Rouge uh, regime was there from 1975 to 1979, um, and that was the main reason why anyone escaped that whole place. So we, well, they actually, um, in 79, when they finally got a chance to escape, they fled from where they were at. It took about two to three days to walk from where they were at to the Thailand refugee border. So when they escaped, um, my father went first. He traced his exact steps because there were landmines and everything like that, and they had to hide from other soldiers, and then made it to the border and then traced his exact steps back and brought the rest of them with him. So I understand you were three when your family moved here, your mom, your dad, and yourself. Uh, was it yeah, first about Iowa? two and a half, three. Um, we had to go where our sponsors were. Our first landmark was uh, where we landed was um, California. And then we went to Iowa because we got sponsors to go there. And then finally Rhode Island. So you were fairly young. What do you remember about that time? I don't remember anything, to be honest. I don't have any kind of memory of the camp of the airplane, and my memories in Iowa are vague, so I I remember parts here and there. You eventually, your family eventually found themselves in Providence, Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. Talk about your yeah. upbringing. Um, it was tough. I mean, when we came to Rhode Island, it was completely different. And we moved here because there was a jewelry district that was hiring, and we needed work. So we came here, and then when there wasn't work, um, we collected for a little while until we had found some work. But the upbringing was a little bit tough because they had to work all the time, and when they did, um, I was always uh, going to school. And the neighborhood that we lived in was a gang neighborhood. And the household that I was at, 
It was a three-family house. We were on a second floor. Well, third didn't transition to the second. That was a whole gang household. Um, so there, there were drive-bys. Our windows got shot up. Uh, car explosions and plastic factories and our lemonade trucks sold drugs. There was prostitution on the other end of the street. And then when we went to school, it was not like a different scenery because it was the same kind of environment in school. And, you know... I hung out with a lot of gang members um, for a big part of my life, for the early childhood into mm. um, teenagers and stuff. And I thought that was normal because that's all I saw the whole time. You said your parents always worked. Um, that's yeah. often what mm -hmm. um, immigrants and refugees do. They have to restart their mm -hmm. lives, make a living for their family. Mm -hmm. How did you avoid the gang if you were friends with them? I didn't avoid them. I just never actually joined you know, um, I was asked a couple of times, and uh, it took me a long time to say no. One, mainly because I was afraid of my parents, you know. Um, it wasn't an easy upbringing. Because of what happened in the Khmer Rouge, they destroyed so many things, from arts to education to music. And one of the biggest things that they destroyed was the family structure and love. So when they came to the United States, they were on survival mode the whole time in Rhode Island. And... I didn't get that whole, there was no I love yous, no hugs, no kisses, nothing I remember of that. Hardly any holidays, happy birthdays. I learned all of that, those things, in school. Tell us when you were first introduced to hip-hop. I didn't get it in Iowa. It was a lot of rock and roll there. <laughs> so originally I listened to a lot of rock and roll, stuff like Def Leppard and Twisted Sister and all these other names. And then when I came to Rhode Island... First time I heard hip-hop music was in um, when I was on Hanover Street. And I was in transitioning from, what was it, uh, elementary school to middle school. When I went to middle school, there was a lot of gangs. So they listened to a lot of hip-hop music, anything ranging from gangster rap to East Coast rap, New York rap. And that's what I started to listen to. And when did you become a dancer? I didn't become a dancer until I went to high school. Um, because of the whole elementary and the, uh, what is it, the whole middle school phases were all with the gangs. And parts of my teenage years was also part of the gangs because I, I didn't move out of that neighborhood until I was about 16 years old. But when I went to high school, I went to classical high school and um, college prep school. So we all got separated. Some of my friends went to classical, some went to Central Hope whatever it is. So all of our people that we used to hang out with got separated. I went to classical high school. That's when I started breakdancing as a hobby. I made some friends. They were doing it. I thought it was cool. So I decided to do that. But again, I was also still going back to my older friends. And the hardcore thing to do back then was, if you wanted to dance, was breakdancing. And that's how it started. Tell us about some of the projects that you got involved in where you discovered your passion. But yeah, so I mean, breakdancing was the start of it. Just became a hobby. When I went to um, I went to Everett Company Stage in School for the first time, I was like maybe turning 16. And it was an open breakdance class. It was kids everywhere dancing and just doing what they love to do. And I was into one corner just practicing with some friends. And Dorothy Jungles, who is the artistic director of that company, saw me. And she said, after the class, she said, hey, do you want to do a school show? It's an anti-tobacco school show. Um, and I was like, uh, but then she said, you know what? You get about 15 to $25 per show. You get either pizza 
or McDonald's per show, and then uh, you get to skip school. Okay, sign me up. <laughs> and that's when I decided to do it. After our first show, she was like, you're part of the core group. And then I just kept doing on and on. And at the age of 18, 19, they asked if I wanted to go on a national tour and be part of this um, touring piece called Somewhere in a Dream. And I was like, sure, let me just give it a chance. But I was so shy, I couldn't speak. But I was always a great mover, so I didn't have any lines. But um, physical lines, I had a lot of. And that's how it all started. I started to fall in love with traveling and touring and, and um, community. Every single place that we went to, we worked with the community, which was amazing. I got to meet new students, new uh, new people. Mm-hmm. And that, and I just kept doing it. And, it became, and then it became less of a hobby and more of a passion. And there was a love for it. You did a TED Talk in Providence. I think you told the audience, if not for dance, you'd either be in jail or dead. Did dance save you? Dead or in jail. Dance, um, hip-hop, the arts saved my life because when I did um, go to classical high school and when I also went into the Everett Company Stage in School, most of my friends were from everywhere. But what I was felt comfortable most were friends that were like me, that came from... Uh, these kind of gang neighborhoods and that kind of background and that kind of community. I felt comfortable in that state, so I went back to those kinds of friends and a couple of friends of mine who were at Everett went through some hardships in their life, so I did that. We made some a lot of mistakes doing these things here and there, um, but because of the arts and the hip-hop dance, that kept me going, and that was the only thing that kept me going because school started to fall drastically, um, and I didn't have a great relationship with my parents because we didn't really talk much. And so I stuck with the friends I knew most, and that's what did it. But the only thing that kept me going was the arts and the hip-hop dance. This is where we live. We're speaking with Sokia Ross, the Mm -hmm. director of the hip-hop dance program at Everett Company Stage and School in Providence. He'll be in Connecticut later today to speak at Wesleyan University's Ring Family Performing Arts Hall. I understand, Sokia, you founded a hip-hop dance and theater troupe in 2004. Case closed. Tell us about that group. Yes. Well, I mean, I spoke with Dorothy about this, the artistic director, and I was like, you know what? I've been given so many opportunities and so many rare chances that I would hardly get. So I wanted to do the same thing for upcoming youth. So I wanted to start this thing called Case Closed, and we had auditions. We had a lot of students come from Hope High School, Central Mount Pleasant, and went down to about 13 to 15 performers. And I really wanted to give them a chance to dance professionally, teach professionally tour and do what they love to do on top of school and it's not a thing where I wanted to get them just to get them out of the streets but also to for them to follow their heart and follow their passion and do what they love to do and that was that's because that's how it came to me and it came to me kind of like a uh, a dream almost I thought it wasn't real like you can't make a living doing this so you can't be happy doing this and I did that I wanted to make sure I'm able to do that for other kids as well so Case Close started in 2004, and three groups later, we're still going. And now it's 2017. We just finished a show in Provincetown and another one at the Barker Theater here in Providence. So you're helping these youth explore creativity, um, ways to channel out the negativity in their lives? Yes, in a sense. And a lot of them are going through or did go through things that I went through or different things. Everyone's going through some kind of struggle. You know what I mean? And... I wanted to them to, for them to channel that struggle into power, into passion, into their dance, and into their, their spoken word. 
And that's how it came about. So you see yourself and some of these kids that you're working with. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot of them. How did you take the experience that you had growing up and the experience of your parents and translate that into the, the dance and theater that you're doing now? It was tough. Um, I didn't understand what hip-hop and the arts did for me or how it helped me. Um, it was a long time until I really realized what, at the age of 18 or 19, I decided I wanted to be an artist or a dancer, you know, and really go forward with this. Um, my parents were very disappointed for a long time. I mean, very, very disappointed. They say things like, you know, how can you go to classical high school and not graduate? Because I failed out. I had to take summer courses to graduate and then go to a community college and then fail out of that. And then two colleges later, drop out of those things too. So I was a very a big disappointment for a long time until my work started to get more elaborate started touring more, teaching more in different states and going to Cambodia. And when finally, when I finally graduated, when I went back to college in 2013, I graduated in 2014. That was the big aha moment where they were finally proud of me. And I got my first hug from my father for the first time. I was 34 years old. And that was the first time I got my, we got our family portrait. Again, I was 34 and it was taken on an iPhone, you know, and... That was a big turning point for us. Big, big turning point. It was an emotional moment. You finally had that connection with your father? Yeah, yeah. And in 2015, I premiered my solo show called From Refugee Camp to Project, which I've been working on since 2013. <clears throat> and that show was a big, it was kind of like a, uh, a bridging of the gap almost with between me and my daughter, who's 14 now, and me and my parents because... We didn't really communicate, but having to speak to them and hearing their stories in 2005, you know, it just opened my eyes a little bit more. And the stories that they have, that I have, that so many of us have, you know, I'm able to share that now and speak to so many different people and who are going through the same things can actually relate to it and understand each other and feel some empathy for each other and create some relationships and friendships. And that's how it started. So, Kia, tell us more about that connection. You said you you um, visited Cambodia. How did mm -hmm. you get your parents to open up about a very traumatic time in their lives? Well, I've always heard a lot of the stories growing up. But, you know, as a child, it was in one ear, out the other. And every time they told the story, I felt like they were using that as, as a guilt trip. You know, oh, people in Cambodia would have died for that last grain of rice that you're leaving. Things like that. And um, in 2013, I mean, I'm sorry, 2005, 2004-ish, we were doing a, a, a touring piece called Home Movies, five individuals and their personal stories with dance and video and, and, you know, storytelling. And I didn't know much of mine. So Aaron Jungles, who was also co-artistic director of um, Everett, we went and sat down and spoke to my parents for about three hours. We videoed and, and interviewed them. And that was the first time I learned about 75% of my history and really paid attention. You mentioned this project from refugee camp to project. Um, mm -hmm. You've been working on that for some time. What yes. do you think about the rhetoric in this country today when we look at, at refugees? It's tough. It's a tough situation. I mean, because I was a refugee. I mean, because of that opportunity of coming to the United States, it just gave me a better life. And, and I was able to do things that I wouldn't be able to do if I was, you know, back in Cambodia because it was going through such a... a 
a harsh, harsh and and and, and heart wrenching time. Because of of that situation, it made me so much, made my family better. We got a chance to be able to connect and connect with other families that came with us. Um, so that whole thing about the refugees, it's it it touches home, and it's heart wrenching to hear what others are saying, like leave them there or they don't belong here or things like that. I mean, if that happened when I was going through what I was going through. During that time, I wouldn't probably wouldn't even be here today. How well, sometimes opportunities and chances happen in that kind of environment. How have you seen your role as an artist um, change perceptions, if at all? Yeah, I mean, before it was just I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to dance and travel and 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 teach and you know things like that. But now it's more like there's. Um, I believe now that there is a there's a reason for everybody. And there is this bigger picture for everyone. And you're here for a purpose. And I believe that I'm doing my purpose and living my purpose and enjoying it at the same time and also working hard towards helping others realize why they are here and, 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 and that they mean something. And they're a part of this bigger picture to either help out or, or whatever the case may be. The youth that you work with, when they find out that you came here as a refugee, are they surprised? Are they confused what that term even means? Surprised, yeah, yeah. A lot of them who didn't know me, like every time I, because t- we also do a lot with mass incarceration, and for the past six years, or going on six years, I've been teaching in collaboration with Everett, of course, at the uh, Department of Youth Services in Massachusetts, incarcerated youth. So when they hear about my story, they're like, oh my God, that's that's crazy. I didn't know you went through this kind of hardship and then, um, oh, you were a refugee and then they didn't even know that. So it, it opens up them opens them up a little bit more on what they think about refugees and immigrants. You mentioned mass incarceration, the focus mm-hmm. of your work uh, now. We know that issue disproportionately affects black Americans. Mm-hmm. As an Asian American, what do you think you bring to the conversation? Oh, it affects us too, a lot. And the majority of us are getting deported. Um, when I was in Cambodia, I met so many amazing deportees, and a lot of them who have already served their time, gave back to community, and completely changed their lives around, still get deported after the fact. Um, and I'm thankful that I'm able to actually go and meet them. As an Asian American, Cambodian American, Khmer American, um, we have a lot to say, we have a lot to talk about, because we were also for Cambodians were known as the gang members. Every time you mention a Cambodian person, they say, oh, you in a gang on this and that. I've been pulled over so many times where they've always asked, are you in a gang? Things of that such. And so those things, it's, it's um, and even if not by cops, other people too, you know. So every time you mention you're Cambodian, it always brings in that stigma, that stereotype. So there, are, we have a lot to say, Asian American, any minority, quote unquote, can speak on this. You mentioned your daughter briefly earlier. Mm-hmm. Tell me about how um, you're working with her and how she is learning about your family story. She was learning the whole thing during the creation of my show from Refugee Camp to Project in 2015 before the showcase. Because I, she's also in the showcase, I mean, in the show. Um, we have a duet together that we do, and then she learned a lot of things about me that she didn't know such as me living in my car for a little while, uh, moving from house to house, uh, 
and dropping her off at my parents before I had to go back in my car and sleep for the night or find a place to sleep. Um, also finding out about all my struggles that I went through. She did, I didn't tell her all these things. Again, I'm also learning to be a father, learning about emotions, still learning about love and I love yous and stuff like that because I didn't learn it growing up. There was a lot of anger, a lot of sadness. There are happy moments, but more anger than anything. So I wanted to make sure that my daughter was in my show and that we were able to connect through the show. So that was my way of speaking to her. And, uh, you know, every single tour that I've been, I've been in six tours now, and every single tour that I've been in, um, I learned something new about myself. So this is very therapeutic for me and for my daughter. I understand you're traveling to Cambodia later this yes. week. Tell us about that. Mm -hmm. And is your daughter coming? Yes, I'm actually um, I'm traveling in two days, to be, as a matter of fact. And that is going to be crazy. My daughter is going with me. It's called the Cambodian Lullaby Project. And she is one of the students. So this project and this program, Cambodian Lullaby, is an intense month-long project in Cambodia for them to do interviews and documentation work and visit historical sites and learn the ins and outs of a Cambodian person, the lives, how it differentiates between the ones in the United States and the ones in Cambodia. And then when we get back, we have about three months to either put some kind of showcase on or some kind of video you know, thing on so to let the people know how, how it went. So Kia Ross is the director of the hip-hop dance mm -hmm. program at the Everett Company Stage and School in Providence, Rhode Island. He's also founder of the dance theater troupe Case Closed. He's speaking at Wesleyan University this afternoon. We'll have information on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. So Kia, thanks so much for speaking with me and safe travels. Thank you for having me. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. WNPR's executive producer is Katie Talarski. Check out WNPR.org slash where we live for more about the show. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.